Good morning. You can grab a seat. Let's uh, let's pray together as we start this morning. God, we do thank you for this uh, Sunday, this culmination of Advent waiting and celebration of the fact that you have come. And we long for you to come again. Even as Jake prayed, we don't just need a new year, we need a new creation. So we look forward to that. We ask that as we delve into the scripture today in the book of John, that you would speak to us, that you would remind us of who you are, why you've come, how that shapes our life from day to day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the book of John today, leaving the dreams of Zechariah to move on to John. Uh, we've worked our way during Advent through, the, through these four candles, a hope, peace, joy, and love. Christmas Eve, we, we kind of culminated that whole story in the coming of Jesus. And today we're going to start this series. It's going to take us up to Lent in the book of John. Uh, John focuses in on who Jesus is. We're actually going to walk through the statements in John, the I am statements of Jesus, where he says, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. Over the next seven, eight, nine weeks, we're going to be looking at those. But today uh, is just the opening of the book of John. It's, it's, it's the Christmas story of John, if you will. Actually, I've called it the Christmas back story. And I call it that because if, if you read the Gospels, Matthew and Luke start with the typical kind of baby in a manger type idea, you know, the Bethlehem and those kind of things. Mark starts the story of Jesus when Jesus is 30 years old. There is no manger there. It starts right at John's coming to proclaim, here comes the Messiah. Well, John goes back, but he goes way back to, to the Christmas backstory. He introduces the Messiah, Jesus, in a way that anchors who he is in something that is bigger than a stable, that is even bigger than the Bible, the text itself, that is bigger than the world, even. And, and we're going to look at that beginning, what people call the prologue of the book of John. We'll read one John 1, 1 to 18, together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John, this witness, testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, 
has made him known. Now, John is most likely the, the last of the four Gospels that was written. And like I said, this framing of Jesus and his coming to earth, uh, it, it's, it's got a really wide lens. It's trying to let you see what a big event actually happened that first Christmas night. And John wants us to see the big picture. And that's why he, he specifically starts his gospel with the phrase, in the beginning. Again, right? He's, he's hearkening back to that, that passage in Genesis where creation began. In the beginning. It's, it's a new beginning, he's saying. It's, it's the starting of something totally new. He zooms out from the manger to see a bigger picture, but not just geographically. He's looking chronologically, and he's saying way back before anything, when only God was, the Word was there. The logos is the Greek word there. And, and he was with God, and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. And, and he wants you to see in this gospel that the story that he's telling of Jesus that something new is starting, something is coming that will reset Everything, And it's an interesting way to say it. We see in verse 14, he says, this logos, this word, becomes flesh. And, and why would he choose that? Why does he not just say Jesus right off the bat? In the beginning was Jesus. Why does he choose the word logos or logos? It's, I think is the right way to say it. I never really know because everybody says it differently. I think the reason he chooses that Greek word logos is because a word is worth a thousand pictures. See what I did there? It's not a picture's worth a thousand words. A word is worth a thousand pictures because the word logos was a really loaded term in that culture. Everybody had meanings attached to it. I was racking my brain to try to think what an, an example that would be in our world today. And I came across this word freedom, right? Freedom. We all, how many of you know what freedom is? Raise your hand if you know what freedom is, right? We all know what freedom is. But it, it means something a little bit different for everyone. Freedom in Canada is one thing. When we think, I want my freedom here, it's very different than what a person in North Korea thinks when they think, I want my freedom. Right? Do you see the difference? It's the same word. has a different meaning. Freedom to a teenager. Freedom to a teenager means I can go out, I can do whatever I want, nobody's telling me what to do. Freedom to a retired person means I don't have to go out anymore, I can stay home. <laughs> right? It's the same word, but it has a multitude of meanings. Freedom for slaves in colonial America was very different than the freedom of the revolutionary fighters who were fighting against England. Same time frame, different freedom. You see how that word has a lot of different meanings. And logos had a lot of different meanings in that world. For the Greek Stoic philosophers, it, I have to read this because it's too smart for me to remember it. It's the rational principle by which everything exists. It's this unifying thing, this force, this principle, this idea that holds everything together was the logos. It was the thing that made everything else make sense. And Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher, he, he was influenced by Plato. And those of you that have studied philosophy, remember Plato has this idea that there's this ideal world where all the perfect things are, and there's the real world where we live, which are just kind of copies of the ideals. Well, Philo thought the logos of God was the real world. It was the, the ideal world out there. It's the thing that everything else was modeled after. And just the Greek word is literally word. The logos, logos, is something that you would say. It's an expression. And we get a term from that, right? Logos, we get the term logo. Because a logo is something that tells you 
about something behind it. Like, for example, let me give you a little quiz. You ready? Yeah. What's that for? FC? Okay, what's Target? Amazon? Apple? The only people that got everyone right were the, the 12 and under sitting over here. Okay, don't tell me marketing doesn't work. Those are logos because they, they speak something to you. They communicate something to you. That's what the Greek word meant, this expression, right? For the Jews, the Hebrew equivalent would be the, the, the Hebrew word debar, which means the word. And it's used all throughout Genesis, the creation, and God spoke, and it was so. It's used in the dreams of Zechariah. Zechariah 1.7, it says, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord, the Debar Yahweh, came to the prophet Zechariah. That's the same idea, this, this speaking, God's self-expression coming out. All throughout Proverbs, wisdom is described as a person. And it's this idea of, of this word, this, this expression of God in a physical, in, in, in a form that we can see. Now, all those meanings were profound for the people who held them. They all thought Logos was really important. And John uses all of them and says, and the Logos became flesh. We could see it. We could touch it. We could see his glory. This rational, unifying principle, this ideal world, this verbal expression of God, this revelation of who he is, all of that became flesh. And since the Logos was with God, the Logos was God, and this Logos was the creator of everything. Once again, he goes back to the idea of Genesis. Something else new is starting. This is the Christmas backstory. Everything that was made was made by this word. Nothing was made without him. He was the creator and verse 4 tells us that the Logos was the source of life, the very power to give existence was his to give. That's why he could create all things. And when we talk about Jesus being the life, I don't think we really grasp that. How many of you sitting here today are alive? Right? We all have life. So we think Jesus was the life, I've got life. But I think what we've got to realize is what we experience as life is a limited, tainted version of life, right? It's not, when, when, when in him was life, it's, it's this unadulterated life that's not tainted by sin and death. All of our life is tainted by death, by sin, by brokenness. I had a conversation with a friend this week that was talking about the problem that we often have as evangelicals is we see sin as this act that we do instead of realizing it's, it's this thing that permeates, it's, it's a disease, it's an illness, it's something that permeates us, that, takes, that, that taints our life with death. And, and what, what John's saying about the Logos was in him was life, but not life like we know it. Frederick Buechner's got a great line he says, what's lost is nothing to what's found, and all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. I love that picture. All the death that ever was, if you could set it next to real life, would scarcely fill a cup. The Logos was the source of life, pure life, life like, like we've yet to know. And just go with me for a minute here. There are times in your life where you feel alive. How many of you have one of those moments where you're like, this is the best moment of your life, Right? 
in that moment, the best you've ever felt, the most alive you've ever felt was still tainted by death. Now can you imagine what real life is like if that moment is tainted by Imagine life with no death. Imagine it. That's what he's saying. This logos, in him was life. And, and that life was the light of man. In, in him was the power of light. And then it says something really interesting. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. It says in some versions, comprehended it, overcome it. Carrie, what did your version? You just read something. I liked what yours said. What did it say? The light, the darkness could not extinguish it. The, the Greek word there is katalambano, and it really means, it does mean, it means to grasp. And sometimes like I've grasped a subject, I got it, I understood it. So there is that idea to it, but it's more like it controlled it. It, it seized it. It grabbed it. And so what it's saying there is, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shined in darkness, but the darkness could not grasp it. The darkness could not control it. The darkness could not overcome it. It's not saying that the light left the darkness confused. Hmm, what is that? Stuff? You know, the light could not comprehend, the darkness could not comprehend the light. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that the light was so true and powerful and real that the darkness couldn't even grab a hold of it. It couldn't grasp it. And we symbolize that through Advent, right? That, that in this dark world, the light keeps growing. One little candle, two candles, three candles, four candles, five candles. The light cannot be stopped as it grows. The light had come. The life that was the light of the world had, had been born. And John reminds us that in this backstory to the Christmas night, the response is surprising. How many of you like a book or a movie with a plot twist? We all like that. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Do you like those? We're wired for plot twists. And I believe, very theological here, I believe that's because we're created in the image of God because God loves to do something that's unexpected. He loves the plot twist. Read the story of the scripture. There's plot, everything through there, right? Baby in a manger in Bethlehem to Jewish peasants is going to be the king of the universe. That's a plot twist, right? And just like that night in Bethlehem, Everything seems to go differently than, than most people would expect. Just as the Messiah comes to a stable to the young Jewish couple beneath the poverty line, John says the coming of Jesus here, even in the backstory, didn't go like people expected. What should happen doesn't. What should happen doesn't. It says in verse 10 and 11, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own didn't receive him. The logos, the life was here. The light had come. And the world that he made did not recognize him. The creation did not recognize the creator. There's this kind of trend on the internet, you may have seen it, of dads shaving and watching their babies respond to them. Have any of you seen this? I'm going to show you a 30-second video. You got that, Rob? Right? Look at the baby, and there's the dad. And we got, if we can pull the volume. Now, after each shave, what's this? <laughs> he came into his own, and you know, the creator is not recognized by the created, right? 
That's what he's saying. This shouldn't happen. The very one whom the whole, who created the whole world, he came into to his creation and they didn't recognize who he was. They don't recognize uh, the life and the light. And not only do they not recognize him, it says they did not receive him. He came into his own and his own received him not. See, that's the reality of the Christmas story. The one who made it all, the one who brings life to his own is rejected. What should happen doesn't. Surprising. But also the, the flip side, what shouldn't happen does. Three things that would be astounding, I think, to those different people who had understandings of that word logos, that, that they can't believe what John's saying because these, these three things. First, first thing he's saying for, for the first time ever, there are humans in God's family. He came into his own, his own did not receive him, but to those who did receive him in 12 and 13, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he, came the, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, this is a radical idea. Right? The Jewish idea of Messiah was that, the, that God would come and he would send a leader that would overthrow the oppressors and reestablish the kingdom. But this is way bigger than that. This is not just a powerful leader that makes everything better. This is, this is somebody coming that's going to bring you and I into the family of God. To those who received him, he gave power to become the children of God. That's one thing that's very surprising. One thing that, that shouldn't happen but does. The, the second one is that the word is in flesh and with us. Those a thousand images that were conjured up by the term logos were all embodied in Jesus. He becomes one of us. He's human. In fact, I would say he's the, the true human. He's what human life should look like. And it says he made his dwelling among us, the, the, the Greek word there literally means he tabernacled, he pitched his tent among us. Now, if you think that sounds familiar, you should, because as the children of Israel left Egypt and traveled through the desert, God gave them a tent, the tabernacle, with the Ark of the Covenant to symbolize his presence with them. And John is saying, just as in the beginning there was a creation, and now again there's a new creation... In this new creation, the, the Logos became flesh and pitched his tent, tabernacled right here among us. These echoes. When the people had been set free, they were given the presence of God. And he's saying, once again, we've got the presence of God with us. And the third thing that's so surprising is we have seen his glory. The Greek word is doxa. It, the Hebrew word, Jake's talked about this before, is kavod. It literally means the heaviness of the presence of God. We've actually been able to get a picture of what God looks like in the, in the Logos. We've seen it. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, this is the Christmas backstory. Something deeply profound has happened, John. Starts the whole gospel by saying that. Something that has forever changed everything. God came in flesh, lived among us, and brought life 
Now, it, it is profound, but you knew that already, didn't you? This is not surprising. Nobody's like, oh, wow, I've never thought of God becoming flesh. That's something we talk about all the time. But, but why would John put it there? Because I think we need to begin to grasp the implications. We need to, instead of just leaving Jesus in the manger, we need to realize how that event shapes the way we live our lives. To see that just like John the Baptist is here in this text, the Logos is still coming into the world in and through you and me. He is bringing life and light to the world. God is coming in flesh and we have a role to play. And that's why I want to talk about at the end the the calling of the witness in 2020. And when I say the witness, I'm talking about you and me. This backstory of the first Christmas has incredible relevance for us, especially as we reflect on the past year and look forward to the coming year. Our role follows John the Baptist. We are the ones that go into the world sent to prepare the way for Jesus to come in and through us. And what does it mean to do that? Let me tell you three things. As you're sitting down to plan out your resolutions, which I know you all are, right? Because we all do those every year. We all keep them. Aren't, don't you feel a sense of satisfaction if you can even remember what your resolutions were last year? <laughs> right? But as you sit down and think about it, I love the end of the year and the beginning of a new year. I know it's just dates on a calendar, but it's nice to come to an end and start again. Think, okay, what's important? As you're doing that, there's three things I want you to realize that the role of a witness that we're called to play because of this incredible story of the, the Logos made flesh, the role of the witness calls us to do three things. First of all, to point beyond us to Jesus. Verse, verses 6 to 9, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness. He was not the light, it said, but he was to witness. He was pointing people to the light. And that's when Jesus, you know, in Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is the role. Our our role in the coming year is to live and speak and act in such a way that points people beyond us to Jesus. And there's something important to realize in that. I love that phrase, he was not the light. John the Baptist came, but he was not the light, but he was sent to testify to the light. Because that's often where our hang-up is. We often are afraid to be a witness for Jesus because we're a bad witness for Jesus. (laughs) How many of you feel like we just don't measure up, so you know, I don't know if I actually bring enough credibility to this thing to actually witness for Jesus. Because look at the mistakes I make. Well, the good thing is you're not witnessing to you. You are not the light, right? You're to point beyond you to Jesus. We worry that we aren't credible enough, that we're too flawed. And this is where the basketball analogy comes in. You've been waiting for it the whole sermon. Last year in college basketball, there was a player by the name of Zion Williamson. It's Zion. We had a spiritual connection, Zion and I. He played for the University of Duke, and he was literally probably the most exciting college basketball player I've ever seen play. Uh, this is a picture of him dunking, okay? He, he, could, he could get up in the air. If, if you take that second shot, his head is at the rim, okay? And you say, oh, he's tall, he's tall. Well, he's six foot seven. Yeah, he's tall, but that means if his head is at the rim there, that means his feet are 41 inches off the floor, 
Incredible basketball player. Now that's pretty amazing. But this, and this is in a game, right? This is not just fooling around in practice. But what if I told you that before he did this, he did a 360 in the air on the way up? Watch this. Can you show that again, Rob? Because it's just too... I got distracted from my sermon prep. Can we show it again? Watch. He was exciting. Now let me tell you this. How many of you, as you're watching this, were saying, yeah, I know he's good, but that Jeff is just not that good a basketball player. Jeff cannot, I don't care who Jeff likes, because Jeff is really not good. My credibility and ability to play basketball has nothing to do with Zion Williamson's ability. I can point beyond me to him. In fact, the contrast between me and Zion, and there's a big contrast, it actually makes him more incredible. And sometimes as we're talking about Jesus, we just get so weighed down by our mistakes instead of realizing that, that our mistakes and the beauty of Jesus can actually, our failures can actually amplify who he is. Our, our role is to point beyond us to Jesus. But Jeff, you say, doesn't that just let us off the hook? That way we don't have to do anything. Well, I'm not going to let you fully off the hook, but I'm just going to say, if you're using an excuse for telling people about Jesus, the fact that your own life is messed up, that's not your job. Your job is not to have a perfect life. We're, we're growing in that. We're moving toward that, hopefully. But don't let that inner critic, that voice inside your head, tell you that you shouldn't talk about Jesus because your life is so messed up. You are not the light. You're not trying to sell people on your life. You're trying to sell people on who Jesus is. See, we can point to him because it says, out of the fullness of his grace, in the text, we have all received one blessing after another. My failures have been forgiven because of the fullness of his grace. And so I can even talk about my own failures as I point to the beauty of who he is. We've not been perfect. That's the point. But we're still called, we're called to point beyond us to Jesus and we're called to model grace and truth. To live in such a way as to look like Jesus. It says Moses gave us the law, but through, through the word, through Jesus, we've been given grace and truth. And, and those two must go together, please. Sometimes as Christians, we've really harped on the truth without much grace at all. Right? Or, and I'll just, I, I hate to pick on Facebook every week. Mark Zuckerberg is going to shut me down one day. When you post on Facebook, it's very easy to communicate truth without grace. Because grace is something you experience, not something you read. Be careful how you talk. Because sometimes we can present the truth without any grace at all. And how many of you have been confronted by the truth with no grace? It's not a comfortable place to be. The only way we can actually handle the truth of who God is and who we are is by the grace. That's why those two things come together. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus. And as the fullness of the grace of God changes us, we start to model that grace and truth to the world around us. We're not compromising truth. But we're realizing that grace goes right alongside with it. That people are loved in spite of their failures, through their failures. Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 are, are called on the carpet in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body. And it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished 
and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Do you see how Peter and John, in their boldness for the truth, and also the grace with which they were living their lives, it caused people to look at them and think of Jesus. Wow, what happened? These guys, these are the guys with Jesus. That's that whole first thing to point beyond us to Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Yes, hold to the truth tightly. Don't don't let it go. Don't just wipe, wipe it away, but do it in a spirit of grace. Do it in a manner worthy of the gospel. Do it the way Jesus would, who, who challenged. Actually, you know, that's what gets me. The church tends to challenge all the people that we label as sinners and, and be comfortable with who we are as the religious people. And what I see Jesus doing always is welcoming the sinners and challenging the religious people. You know, maybe we need to be challenged ourselves by the words of Jesus more. Maybe the truth is that we don't have enough grace in our lives. Our calling is to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Don't be, this is the spiritual term for it. This is the phrase that you should write down. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) Right? Love people. Really love people. Tell them the truth, but really love them and that grace will come through. And it doesn't mean that you'll always be loved or accepted, but the reason for rejection should be Christ and not you. It's really important. There's an image in 2 Corinthians 4. When a, when a, a victorious army came back, they would march into the city with incense and the captives would follow behind. And that incense would, would be this sweet smell and the city would be rejoicing. And, and Paul writes with that very image in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives. We've been conquered in Christ's triumphal procession. And uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death and to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Don't you feel overwhelmed? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. There's this idea that as we walk as captives, we've been, cap- we've been captured, we've been defeated, we've been overwhelmed by the, the love and grace of Jesus. And as we follow him, there's this aroma of Christ. And, and some people are going to hate it. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. That's okay. We still need to act with grace and truth to people that hate us. But we need to make sure it's Christ, that's, it's the aroma of Christ that's offending them and not just our jerkiness. That's another theological term. Look it up in any jerkiness, it's there. I'll find a Greek word for it and give it to you next week. So we're called to point beyond ourselves to Jesus, to live as models of both truth and grace. But the key to that, the key to that comes through verse uh, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh, he lived among us, we beheld his glory. And, and, and what that's saying there is because the Logos became one of us, we can now know him. 
And that becomes the key to living with grace and truth. And, and in, in the phrase, if you want to put it in a phrase, our calling is to know and to make known. To know and to make known. This is the summary, really, of the Christian life. First of all, to know Jesus. To, know, to live in a relationship with him. John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That, that eternal life is knowing Jesus, not knowing about Jesus, not having a theological understanding of Jesus, but living in a relationship with Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is such a profound concept and so simple and so hard at the same time. Faith is not knowing about God. It's not getting your theology straight, although that's important. I'm not downplaying that. Faith is knowing Jesus in a relationship as a person. I've been married for 27 and a half years. It's good, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about that too. I am not the person that I was when I first met Angela. Thank goodness. Right? And, and I, can, I, I can say I know Angela, and I can tell you facts about Angela. But the point is, my relationship with her over 27 and a half years has shaped me to be a different person. I can still remember one day years ago, we were driving in the car. And um, Angela has big, bold ideas. She dreams in technicolor, and I'm a details, realist kind of guy. <laughs> and it's not been easy for her to live with me because of that. But she had this idea, this was when we still lived in North Carolina, and I, I just kind of shot it down, and she, just, she said to me, you're the most negative person. And I was like, how dare you say that about me? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I am the most negative. I was at that point. And I still am the realist. But you know what? I'm not negative like I used to be. And, and that's changed not because I know things about Angela, but because my relationship with her has changed me over time. That's what I'm talking about with Jesus. It's not knowing about him. It's, it's receiving that love, grace, truth from him, living in a relationship with him over time, and who he is shapes who I am. That's, that's what it looks like. And it doesn't happen like that. That's why we have these commitments about worship and mission and learning and relationships, because they're practices that help us over time live in a relationship with God and shape us to be more like him. You know, by interacting with me, you get to know Angela a little bit. You get to see part of her in me. Thank goodness. That's the better part, right? And by interacting with the world, with you guys, by the world interacting with you, they should get to know Jesus a little bit. I mean, I, that's what, one of the reasons I coach basketball is I want the girls on my team to get to know Jesus and what he's like. And my hope is that by my interactions with them, they'll see a little bit of who he is. And that's what all our lives are about. Right? That we are to point beyond ourselves to Jesus. That we are to live as models of grace and truth. And that by knowing him, we make him known. 
We're changed. We become more grace and truth-centered, and we model for the world what Jesus looks like. So if, if you're sitting down this week to plan out your resolutions, think of these three things. Number one, how am I going to know Jesus better? How am I going to take the time to actually get to know him? Because that, it, it's not just studying about him, it's actually living in a relationship. And then how am I going to, what situations are in my world this week and this coming year where I can actually extend both grace and truth to the world around me? And how can I point people to Jesus? How can I do it with my life? How can I do it with my words? To me, those three ideas could craft the, the coming year that, that would really be impactful, make a difference. An excellent way to enter the new year. Let's, let's pray together. God, we're thankful that you became flesh. And God, we're, we're a little bit overwhelmed by that truth because it's bigger than something we can comprehend, bigger than something that we understand, bigger than something we can even really communicate to somebody else. But I pray, God, that you in this coming year, you would help us to know you. Not to know about you, but to live in a relationship with you, to, to receive your love, your forgiveness, your grace. And to allow that to shape us, to, to help us to be models of that same grace and truth to the people around us. And by doing it, to point people to you, the one who has, has brought about the hope for a new creation. Not just to make things better, but to completely restore them, to bring life, full life, not tainted by death, into the world. Help us to be these models as we go out. Help us to know and make you known. And help when people look at us and the relationships we have with them, I, I just pray, God, that they would see a glimpse of who Jesus is in that. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we close. Mm -hmm.